Hello, I'm Gary Smith, your host, and I want to welcome you to another episode of Psychedelic Alex, The Law of Psychedelics. I want to thank you for joining me for another episode of Psychedelic Alex. Today's show is going to be a review of IP34, which is the Oregon Psilocybin Initiative that's on the ballot for this election season. The inspiration for today's episode is the result of two separate conversations I had this last week with two of my friends which in turn spurred me on to want to do a review of IP34. Also in part because of circumstances happening here in my home state of Arizona, there's a lot to connect, and I'll get into that in a moment. But first, let me tell you about the two conversations, because they, they tie right into this whole discussion. The first one, which was about a week ago, uh, I was talking with a friend of mine who was relaying to me in turn a story uh, from another friend of my friends, so third party removed. Uh, and my friend, she or he, I, I'm not going to reveal names, of course, told me that their friend had had a, a, an experience that was not very pleasant, resulting from some psilocybin usage. And what my friend explained was that their friend had, under circumstances that probably weren't the best, consumed some mushrooms while in the company of someone else, and I guess they were just engaged in normal social activities. And this in, in turn induced a panic attack uh, that, well, made problems for everybody there. In the end, it all worked out. Everybody was fine. Nobody was injured, and, and, and all is well. But I ended up commenting back to my friend that it sounded to me like my friend's friend had been rather casual or careless in their use and had violated the two rules, the two cardinal rules of any psychedelic, which is, of course, set and setting. And I relayed that to my friend, not in a condescending or condemning fashion, but just to kind of get the point across that... Uh, if psychedelics are going to come back and, and be part of the Western landscape, so to speak, people have to not treat them like they are other typical pharmaceuticals that you go and, and get from a pharmacy. It's not the experience of pop a pill and just go about your business in most instances. Uh, these have profound effects that you should really be prepared for and also be willing to devote the time necessary Again, most commonly, you can't just pop 
pop a psychedelic and go jump in the car. Uh, that would be a horrendous idea. Uh, and likewise, for most people, I think being in a frenetic social situation is more anxiety uh, elevating than not. But there are people who, who do this and then can manage it, but I doubt that that's the average person. Um, in any event, my friend kind of reacted a little cold to what I was trying to express. And that got me thinking further that this is ultimately going to be a problem for every community that might be looking to reschedule, deschedule, decriminalize, or in some fashion just alter the, the legal and political relationship that that community has with a particular psychedelic substance that they might have an interest in. So, for example, if it's uh, psilocybin, as in the case with the Oregon Initiative, um, that community is going to have to make decisions that range from whether to make changes, and if so, what they will look like. And the ranges can further include, do you have psilocybin available only by prescription, uh, only in clinic, and only with the accompaniment of a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist uh, along for the uh, trip, so to speak? Uh, do you allow people without necessarily that level of credential to be the party in attendant? Do you allow for someone to take it unattended? Do you require them to go to a particular facility? Would you allow them to remain home? Would you allow them to remain home alone? Uh, these are a broad spectrum of choice and option that any community that's going to reschedule or deschedule or decriminalize or, or some fashion re-regulate is going to have to wrestle with. So that was the first conversation of roughly a week ago that got me thinking about this. The second conversation, which popped up just about two or three days ago, uh, a friend of mine sent me an article, and, and we chatted a bit about it. And it was in this week's uh, Wired magazine. And the article was discussing a Canadian company that is in an alternative clinic business. They do ketamine, but they have eyes at expanding their wares to include other psychedelic substances as they come back into some form of legal access. And I read this article, and what it talked about was that this clinic has developed a bit of a trip sitter app. And I thought, that was, that's, that's an interesting game changer, possibly. Um, and maybe a further alternative that communities might want to consider. And there are varieties of ways that one can have a trip sitter app, ranging from having it connected to some sort of a call center so you might be able to video conference direct with an actual human, even if you're not necessarily in their physical presence. Um, it could just have timed monitors where it goes off at certain intervals to check in on you or to have you check in. It could be a variety of things. But I thought this technology option is novel, and in the time of pandemic, I think, apt to catch on. Uh, whether it's a suitable substitute for a trip sitter or whether one even requires a trip sitter will remain questions that each community is probably going to wrestle with for a while and decide for themselves. But eventually, I suspect some consensus might be reached in, in the deep future. 
So with all that said, let me introduce IP34, the Oregon Psilocybin Initiative, because Oregon is exactly at this moment addressing exactly this question of what structure would they seek in order to have some form of psilocybin mushroom permitted in their community. And for this, let me take you on a tour of the initiative, and I'll switch over to the computer now, and we'll take a look at this thing together. So let me get this thing moving. All right, so as you can see here on the screen, I've just launched a browser. Doesn't matter what browser you use, pick whatever you want. And we're going to look for IP34. And that is the Oregon Initiative. And there's an organization here, uh, yes, on ip34.org, that is the, the support organization, the sponsor of this initiative. And let's just go to their website real quick and take a look. And then we'll pop back over for a moment. Um, so you can go to yes, or excuse me, vote yes on 109.org, and it's initiative 109. All right, so when I do research on initiatives or, or various ballot items, I typically go to Ballotpedia as one of my research sources, and this is where I brought you today. And what we've looked up is Ballotpedia, and it's the Oregon Measure 109, which you can see right here on the screen. And if you just go to their home screen, you can just search for Oregon Measure 109, and you'll find this. And the reason I go to Ballotpedia is that they pull in data from a variety of different sources. So if you want to do side research on different aspects, you don't have to jump back to a browser and go search again. You can just typically follow the links here, which makes it very convenient. Anyway, you'll, you'll see here that uh, Ballotpedia will give you an initiative overview, uh, and this typically lifts directly from the language from the initiative itself. Here's some of those links I was talking about. And here's the text of the measure. And if you scroll down, you can get to it. Sorry, it's a little slow. Here's the, here's the full body of it. And if you look where I'm swirling around the mouse here, it's a 71-page initiative, which makes it a little ornery to review here in this window. So I confess I've cheated and actually already pulled down a copy in its full form. So let me drop the browser down and open the initiative. All right, so here we are reviewing the initiative. This is the full body, full text of it. And I'll take you through a tour. It is, again, 71 pages, and, and Lord knows nobody wants to sit through that much. So we're just going to skim it, okay? This is going to be on the ballot, and Oregonians are going to vote on this initiative in the election this November. So at the same time they're deciding whether or not to retain Donald Trump, they will be voting on whether or not they need psychedelics. So section one is the findings. And what this stands for is a statutory set of findings, same as if, for example, uh, this had originated inside of the legislature as a normal, ordinary legislative statute. It is the common practice in legislatures to hold hearings before they enact laws in order to establish bases for those laws and reasons for enacting them and to collect public testimony in order to 
establish a clear record of what they are doing and why. This, however, is enshrined in the literal text of the initiative. And that probably begs uh, an indulgence here for a moment that I explain to you what initiatives are so that you have the full context of why we're looking at this document. So let's start with some basics. If ever you had been watching Saturday morning cartoons during the 70s and even into the 80s, you may remember a series called Schoolhouse Rock. And Schoolhouse Rock has this fantastic episode called I'm Just a Bill. And the story of how a law gets made is portrayed in that cartoon. In about 20 minutes, they explain how a bill gets started inside of a legislature, gets moved around both of the sides of the legislature, both the House and the Senate, and then eventually gets pushed on to the executive, be the president, who vetoes or, or signs it. And that's the typical way that laws get passed here in the United States. Legislatures craft those laws, they hold hearings, they debate, they decide, and then they pass it along to their state's executive, the governor, to approve or veto. But 24 states out of the 50 states have an additional avenue for lawmaking. And this is how public initiatives come to exist. And in these lucky 24 states, of which my home state of Arizona is one, and clearly in the example today of Oregon, another, the states, through their constitutional powers, have paths by which the citizens can completely bypass the legislature and get laws enacted. And the way this happens is the proposed law, known as an initiative, will be drafted and submitted in an appropriate form that follows certain statutory requirements. Uh, and then you'll go through a period of signature gathering for the petition. So if you recall ever being in front of a grocery store or a Home Depot and uh, being approached by people with those little clipboards for you to sign on petitions, that's exactly this experience. Anyway, if enough of those signatures are collected, the initiative then qualifies to be voted on. And at the next appropriate election, the initiative is placed onto the ballot for a popular vote. And if it garners enough votes, it passes and becomes law of that state. Or if you live in a city or county that also allows initiatives, a law of that city or county. And that's how this goes. Um, and this is how Oregon has a psilocybin initiative on the ballot. Um, what it also tells you is that there are enough Oregonians who were interested in this that they collected enough signatures. And I, I think in, in Oregon's instance, to qualify to be on the ballot took something upwards of 140,000 signatures. So they collected upwards, significantly upwards of that, because the general rule of, of signature gathering for campaigns is uh, you always try to get way more than you need because there's a vetting process where some of those signatures can be invalidated and thus no longer count towards your, your obligation. But if you've collected enough signatures and you qualify and you get onto the ballot, uh, you will then have the uh, opportunity for the public to vote. So um, that is happening in Oregon with psilocybin, and uh, here in Arizona, recreational cannabis is also, uh, by initiative, on our ballot. 
Uh, ironically, as I'm recording this, there's actually a small group of about six citizens who have filed an injunction lawsuit here in Arizona to try to prevent our initiative from even being on the ballot. They're claiming some sort of a, a material defect in the uh, formation of the initiative and its, its uh, collection of signatures. Uh, they just last week had their petition for injunction denied by the trial court, and I understand uh, Monday of this week they filed to have the Arizona Supreme Court review that denial. Um, so that's part also of, of today's instruction, that initiatives are fantastic things. I mean, ultimately, when you think about what they really represent, they are the best, and in some states, last, true bastion uh, of true direct democratic involvement in your government. Because if you're in a state where your legislature is unresponsive to citizens' needs, the citizens have the power to address the problem themselves through the democratic process of voting. Um, again, not every state offers that option. So if you live in a state that's got kind of tough, tight politics, you're kind of out of luck unless you run for office and change things. But here at the citizen level, you can make monumental change to state law. Uh, in case of Arizona, not only do we have a recreational initiative that's on the ballot, but 10 years ago, initiative is how Arizona got its medical marijuana program. And it's been chugging along quite successfully ever since. So let's turn now to the Oregon initiative. Now that I've laid that foundation, I hope you understand better what initiatives are and where they come from. Thank you. 